All right, for uh, this morning, because uh, Edner was baptized this morning, I'd like to do a uh, baptism-focused study. Um, generally have done this um, over the last few years, connected to our baptism events. Uh, it's good for us to periodically just uh, refresh and remind our hearts and our perspectives about the significance of baptism. And uh, I want to focus on one particular element in regards to water baptism this morning, and that is answering the question, who should be water baptized? And there's a second question that goes with that, which is not really discussed as much as it should be in Christian circles, and that is, who should not be baptized? Not everybody should be baptized. I hope that's uh, understandable to you. Um, In an ideal world, which we don't live in, in an ideal world, Theoretically, everyone should be baptized because everyone should have saving faith in the Lord. Everyone should bow their knee before him and recognize him in his true and sovereign authority as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Everyone should acknowledge and recognize him as the only Savior that's available for the the great need in their life, the greatest need that everyone experiences, which is the need of their sins, which have separated them from right relationship with God. And how in the world can that problem be overcome? And, and what the Lord has revealed is there's really only one way for that to be overcome, and that's through the saving sacrifice and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But many will never recognize that. Many will never acknowledge that. Many, many will never bow their knee. Many will never confess with their mouth from their heart that Jesus truly is Lord and Savior. And so who should be baptized? And then along with that, who should not? Who should be baptized is this. Only those who were actually born again of God's Spirit and all without exceptions of those who have been born again should be baptized. Who should not be baptized? Those who are not born again. Those who have never come to a true and saving faith with the Lord. Now, this is such a simple and basic principle of true Christianity that it shouldn't really be debatable in true Christian circles. The sad thing is that it has been, is still, and probably will be debated even among true Christians until the Lord returns. The debate so far has been going on in a a pretty significant way for some 500 years already, and I'm dating back in history for those who aren't familiar to a very important moment in Christian history, and it really was, by extension, a very important moment in world history as well. It's just any longer, if you're taking history in a in a secular environment, a secular education system, they don't even really acknowledge the significance of the Reformation any longer, but it transformed societies as we know them and continues to have a great impact on them. The Reformation was a moment about 500 years ago, it happened in the 1500s, where um, there had been, for the most part, a predominant Roman Catholic church presence identified as this is the Christian church. Now, it doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic Church was the only church that existed, 
Uh, There were other pocket groups of true believers outside of the boundaries of the Roman Catholic Church all the way back to the days of Jesus and the apostles in the very beginning of Christianity as we're studying right now uh, on our other Sunday mornings in the book of Acts. All the way back to that uh, initial starting point of the church, there were other pockets of Christianity. But by the year 1500, the great and predominant presence of what was identified as the Christian church in the world was the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church had lots of problems, significant problems, biblical problems. And what I mean by that is there were many things that had developed in some nearly 1,000 years of Roman Catholic history because it didn't really start until approximately the year 500. But from that point forward, for the next 1,000 years, there were lots of things that developed that were not right, not healthy, not biblical, not honoring to the Lord, not pleasing to the Lord. Things like a pope sitting on top of all of the Christian fellowship. There is no pope, of course. You know and understand this in Scripture. There is no true church government office known as the pope. Um, If you were to make a case for a pope, uh, the only one that could possibly qualify would be Christ himself, and he chooses other names to uh, identify himself with rather than that one. Uh, Things like the veneration or worship of the of the Virgin Mary and the and the wrong concept that her virginity was perpetual after giving birth to Christ. Uh, But to to honor at that level of worship anyone other than the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is essentially idolatrous in its expression and certainly not pleasing to the Lord. So there were many things like that that had developed in the Roman Catholic Church. And there uh, started, I'm not going to tell you the whole history of the Reformation, of course. I I don't have time for that this morning. But there started a change in the Catholic Church. It started with one man by the name of Martin Luther. I I think you're mostly familiar with the story. Uh, He came to a true and saving knowledge of the Lord through one specific verse of Scripture in the book of Romans. The Lord spoke to his heart through that verse, brought him to saving faith, and his eyes were opened, and he began to understand the principles of God's word with greater clarity by the grace of God. And as he saw these other important principles in God's word and how the Roman church was not honoring those principles and really twisting them into a misshapen version of Christian church, he made a a decision at a, at a certain fateful point to split off, to break off from the Roman Catholic Church. It was originally not his intention to do so, but he was forced by circumstances to, to uh, form a new fellowship, which became, over history, became known as the Lutheran Church. And you still see Lutheran churches in our society today. But he wasn't the only one, as he began to proclaim the the essential gospel of salvation. Uh, Others came to know the Lord in the same way that he did, and there were other, uh, what then became known as Protestant churches that split off from the Roman Catholic Church. They were called Protestant because they were protesting the the twisting and the the really uh, error-filled... wrong expressions of biblical principle for church life that they, that they saw in evidence in the Catholic Church. Now, there were many things that 
were in disagreement between these Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church. But one of the main things was the viewpoint about baptism. And in terms of viewpoint about baptism, the issue that, that became a focal point is the question that I started this study with this morning, which is who should be baptized? Now, what's interesting, and maybe not all of you are familiar with this, but not all of the Reformed churches, the churches that left the Catholic Church to reform and to try to recapture a more biblical version of Christianity, not all of them left behind the practice of the Roman Catholic Church in regards to baptism. And what was that practice? The Roman Catholic Church then, uh, you know, uh, back in the year 500, uh, excuse me, the, the year 1500, and to this day, 500 years later, practices a principle that we call and rightly identify as infant baptism. And what we mean by that is simply, as soon as a child is born, some few days after they're born, uh, parents that are, that are faithful Catholics are meant to bring their, their young infants to the church service, the church sanctuary, hand their child to the priest. The priest takes the, the child and sprinkles the child with water and pronounces them baptized in the name of the Lord. Now, um, why did the Roman church begin to do this? Uh, the, um, the scriptures have no single expression, either in Old Covenant or New Covenant, of what we call infant baptism. There's no example of it. There's no instruction to do so. And so where did this come from? The, the bottom line, the basic version, the, the short version is this. It was a strategy by the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church. They believed that they were responsible in their service to the Lord to take over the world in a religious and spiritual effort to convert all of the pagans in the world around them in mass conversions to convert as many as they possibly could. And in a strategic decision, they came up with the idea that if we take the practice of baptism, which until the point of the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church had been for believers only, and we now apply that to their infants, then we will capture as a follower their children from the point of birth forward. It's a way of what we would call forced indoctrination. So you baptize an infant before the infant even knows what's happening to them, and you've kind of swallowed them into the system of Roman Catholicism right from the beginning. Now, this is not the way the Lord works. It's not why he has appointed baptism None of the passages in God's word that either give us examples of baptism or instructions about baptism uh, would indicate that this is what we're supposed to do. But they did it because of this conversion strategy that they had arrived at. And it has been, I will say this, somewhat successful for them. Not in actually bringing people to true salvation, but in, in swallowing people into Catholicism and maintaining them through family relationship as these are Catholic families and we pass this on to each generation and ensure that they remain Catholic uh, going on into the future. Now, when the Reformation happened, some of the reformers saw a problem with this and they chose to change the practice of baptism among them. Others of the reformers 
saw no real issue with infant baptism and continued to practice it and still practice it to this day. So there are some really good, strong, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-honoring, God-honoring, God-loving leaders and churches and assemblies, you know, uh, fellowships that are truly reformed in their doctrines of salvation, meaning they have a right understanding of what it truly means to be saved. And yet, on top of that, they continue to practice infant baptism. The reason for that is primarily because they came out from the Roman church, and while they disconnected from some of the errors of Catholicism, they failed to disconnect with every single error and carried some of those errors into their new fellowship pattern with them. Now, there were others, though, that saw an issue with this practice of infant baptism. At the very beginning, they were labeled by Catholicism with a new name. They were called Anabaptists. How many have ever heard the term Anabaptist? It's okay if you haven't heard it. Uh, It literally translates as rebaptizers. And it was applied to them as a name, as a label, as, as a, not just a criticism, but really as an insult. The, the Catholic hierarchy hated those that were attempting to rebaptize people because, in their view, to rebaptize was to dishonor Catholicism and to completely disassociate from it. Now, in terms of rebaptizing, why did they rebaptize? The, the rebaptizers saw this that the infant had never really heard the gospel before they were baptized. The infant had no ability at that point of infancy. Their minds were, were pretty much a blank slate at that point, not able to conceptualize, not able to understand language, not able, able to understand the gospel, and certainly not in a saving way. Therefore, it was not even possible for those infants to be born again yet. They had experienced a natural birth, but there's no possibility that they've experienced a spiritual birth. And so they should not have been baptized. So you had a whole generation of people who had themselves been baptized as as infants, but now had truly come to know the Lord. They had heard the gospel. They had believed it in a saving way. And so they were convinced, now we should be baptized. Our initial infant baptism was invalid. It had no bearing on our relationship with the Lord because we could not believe in any saving way as infants, but now we do. And so now we should respond to the gospel and the commission and the commands of the gospel to be baptized following a saving faith expression in the Lord and in the message of salvation that we call the gospel. Now, later, uh, the Anabaptists split into different groups uh, there are some principles of churches that continue to identify themselves as Anabaptists that I do not biblically agree with today, and that's why we don't affiliate or associate ourselves with the name Anabaptist. But we are rebaptizers, even though we're not Anabaptist in our denominational kind of affiliation. We are, however, the other group that then developed was what became known later in history, and we still, we still identify with this name tag. Uh, We don't talk about it a lot, but we are what is called a Reformed Baptist Church. And it's not because we're part of a Reformed Baptist denomination, 
but it's simply because we're committed to those two key principles in our church life. We're reformed in our understanding of the gospel. We're reformed in our understanding of how the Lord saves us. And we're Baptist in that we believe that baptism is for believers only. It's not for people who have never believed the gospel in a saving way. Therefore, we do not baptize infants in this church. Um, However, we just baptized a very young child. Um, We baptized Edna this morning. Edna, how old are you? I'm sorry, what? You're eight. Edna's eight years old. Now, it was wonderful that Edna got baptized. And I, you know, I'm convinced along with his parents that it was the right decision and the right thing for us to do. But I want you to understand, excuse me, there's a discernment process that goes into and precedes the baptism of an eight-year-old. Why is there a necessary discernment process? It's because it's difficult to discern the motives of a child. There could be more than one reason Edner wanted to be baptized this morning. Just like it's actually possible there could be more than one reason that an adult would want to be baptized. Uh, but for an eight-year-old, one is, Edner's a, I, I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to interact with him, get to know him, talk to him. Uh, I've spent some time with Edner. He's a really good young boy. I, I mean, apart from getting baptized today, he's just a good young boy. He's got a good heart. Uh, he's very, very sharp. Uh, he's very interested in all kinds of things. He's, he's very interesting to talk to. He's got a good attitude. He's got a good disposition. And so... When you have a good boy like that and he's part of a family and now part of a church family and his, his mother and father have both been baptized and he's part of a church family where we have all been baptized, there's going to be a natural tendency to want to identify with his family and with his church family and to join us in the practice of being baptized. That's not a good enough reason to get baptized. And it's on our shoulders as leaders and his parents' shoulders to discern whether or not he's wanting to get baptized just to be part of the family and to identify in that way and not be left out in that sense, or whether he's wanting to be baptized because he has a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Jerry was emphasizing uh, just before the baptism this morning. So it's a it's a difficult process to discern. And there have been some cases where parents have approached me in counseling and said, I think my child is ready to be baptized and we'll have a discussion and I'll ask them questions and we'll go back and forth. There have been a few times that I've said, yes, I think, I think they are ready. And there have been a few times where I've said, no, I don't think they're ready. Let's wait and let's make sure because we don't ever want the practice of baptism to become like it became in the Roman Catholic Church which is just an empty formality missing the heart and the spirit and the reality of what it all is meant to actually signify as a symbol. But I will say this, this discernment process about whether a child of eight is ready to be baptized, it's not a foolproof, fail-proof process. There have been a few times in the history of this church, sadly, where a young child was baptized and they grew up and decided once they had more fully formed adult perspectives, they decided, you know, I don't even believe in the Lord anymore. And I certainly don't want to be associated with the church. And I, 
I, you know, whatever I did when I was baptized at, you know, a young child's age doesn't really have anything to do with who I am as an adult. And they've walked away from the Lord. So what, what, what about their baptism in such a case? Well, in such a case, with all of our best intentions, that baptism was invalid. Meaning that baptism wasn't real. That baptism, I'll say it this way, didn't count in the sense of what baptism is really all about. And we'll talk in just a moment about what baptism is really all about. What happens if a child, let's say in Edner's case, you know, I, I, I hope this isn't his future story, but let's say it is, and it's not the worst future story you could have. Let's say he grows up and at 20 years old, he is now experiencing a new and deeper relationship with the Lord at age 20 than he is right now at age eight. And what if he comes to the understanding at age 20 that while he had good intentions at age eight to be baptized, he comes to believe he was never actually born again until he was age 20. And so now we have a 20-year-old who is, for the first time, truly born again, but they were baptized when they were eight years old. What should we do in such a case? We re-baptize them. Why? Because baptism is a symbol of something very specific. And in God's order, it always is meant to follow the new birth. It never is meant to precede the new birth. So if someone's born again at 20, I don't care if they were baptized as an infant or if they were baptized at age eight or if they were baptized at age 19. If they weren't born again until they're 20, then they should not be baptized until they're actually 20. And sometimes in the reality of how these things are discerned, such cases will develop. So now let's take a moment and, and just refresh our hearts. I know you know these principles, but it's, it's worth periodically revisiting. What actually happens with baptism? And then how do we understand the misunderstanding of the Roman Catholic Church and then later they pass it on to many even good, healthy Reformed churches who practice infant baptism? Why did they do so? For the Reformed churches that continued to baptize as infants, They did so because of what I believe to be a wrong understanding of two biblical principles and their connection. Those biblical principles are this, that God, in order to enter into relationship with sinning human beings, he forms with those sinning human beings what we call, biblically, covenant relationships. He calls us into a covenant with himself. And so we have in all of redemptive history from Adam until this present moment, we have two and only two covenants that God has formed with his people. We have what we call now, and we're, we're not coming up with this term. This is a biblical term, and this is the terminology that the apostles themselves used to describe it. We have the old covenant, which started with Adam, was later clarified by Abraham and later given very specific rules and guidelines by Moses, but the same old covenant starting with Adam and going all the way up until the arrival of Christ and his death and his resurrection. And now just before going to the cross and just before rising again from the dead, Jesus has that one wonderful last night with his disciples. We call it the last supper. And in that last supper, 
he established a new covenant relationship. Not just with them. It started with the 11 that were there with him in the room that night. But it's now extended and grown to include all of us as well. So a person is either in an old covenant relationship with God or a new covenant relationship with God. And that really is dependent upon what moment in history you exist in. Because, of course, the old covenant has now been fulfilled and it's passed away and it no longer applies except to teach our hearts through the stories and principles and laws and guidelines of the old covenant to teach our hearts what God was doing then and then to inform us about how he continues to do similar things today. I did a similar kind of comparison in the table of the Lord earlier during our communion time. And then, of course, there's the new covenant, and only the new covenant really applies. But the two principles that are in view and have been in view in in what we call Reformed churches are the signs that the Lord has appointed to signify someone is now for the first time entering into a true covenant relationship with the Lord. And as they enter in that true covenant relationship with the Lord, we call them saved. We call them belonging to the Lord, members of God's family. But if you are not in a covenant relationship with the Lord, you have no standing in that circumstance and that family and that relationship with the Lord. So in the old covenant, God appointed a sign, a sign to indicate that people would know. You know what signs are? Like um, if you're traveling down the highway and you see you know, let's say, uh, I know the, um, the Holzendorf family, uh, they drove from uh, Paramount to uh, Chatsworth, uh, Northridge to be with us this morning. Long, long journey to get here to be with us this morning. Um, as they were traveling, I'm sure Austin, as he was driving, was paying attention to signs on the road. Uh, and when he saw a sign that said, uh, you know, I don't know where you exit, but let, let's just say he saw a sign Northridge ahead. Um, when he saw the sign, he didn't think to himself, as soon as I reach that sign, I've reached my destination. The sign simply points to a greater reality than itself. But it's, it's meant to be a, a kind of a, an indicator that you're near that reality, you're, you're in proximity to that reality. So God appointed spiritual signs that have tangible reality in this world to show his people the reality that they are actually now entering into a covenant relationship with him. The sign isn't the relationship, but it points to the nature of how you start or how you enter into that relationship with the Lord. So what was the covenant sign in the old covenant? Everybody knows, right? Circumcision. Now that's a pretty dramatic sign. I mean, it's pretty dramatic, but it's interesting. It's the cutting away of extra flesh of the male member of the human body. That's a pretty dramatic sign. But why did God pick that as the sign of entry into the old covenant? So much so that he told Abraham when he first gave him that sign and and it was meant to be practiced and performed by all the succeeding generations of all the children of Abraham to follow. Why did he give him that sign? He could have just said, why don't you take your family members that are joining you in the covenant and dunk them in water? 
He could have had him baptize his family, but the Lord didn't have him baptize his family. He had him circumcise the male members of his family. Why was that the covenant sign? It's because the primary, it's not exclusive, there were, there were a few exceptions through old covenant history, and that's a different study, the, the nature of the exceptions. But the primary way that the Lord caused the growth of his old covenant family of those that became identified with him and became his followers was through what we call natural generation. The primary way that the covenant nation of Israel grew was what? They had children. They gave birth to many children and the Lord encouraged them to give birth to as many as they could. And they did faithfully. Uh, Jacob being the, 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 the poster boy for this, uh, having 12 sons who then became the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the primary way that the covenant grew was through having babies. And so it was only spiritually appropriate that the Lord attached the covenant sign to the physical way that babies are brought into this world in terms of the starting point for how that happens. Now, in the new covenant, do we still circumcise as a covenant sign? And the answer is no, we do not. We baptize as covenant sign like we did for Edner this morning. Why do we baptize rather than circumcise? Because the way that God is growing his family today is no longer through natural generation. For instance, um, we've had some, we've been blessed to have some babies born recently and we've got at least one baby that's on its way, hopefully. And, um, and uh, you know, it's a blessing to welcome babies into the, into the family of God in the, in the extended sense. But you understand that when a baby is born to a true Christian family, a believing Christian family, mother and father are both, both born again, does that mean their baby is also instantly born again? Of course not. Their baby is not instantly born again. Their baby hopefully will be born again someday. But whether we baptize them in water or not has no bearing on whether they're actually born again. Again, the baptism is meant to follow the reality of a new birth experience of that child. And so God has changed the covenant sign from old covenant to new covenant. The reformed churches that continue to baptize infants don't understand the difference between the two covenant signs. They see such a similarity that they see circumcision was was practiced by, by being performed on all of those who were children of the covenant family. Therefore, baptism should just be imposed on all the children of the covenant family. But it's failing to understand that in the old covenant, the emphasis was on natural generation. And in the new covenant, we call it being born again, but the emphasis is on spiritual regeneration, not natural entry into this world. We're no longer focused on first birth into this world, but on second birth in God's kingdom. Now, let's look at some passages. We're just, we have just enough time to glance at uh, maybe three passages here, maybe four at the most. 
we'll do this fairly quickly. The first one I said is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is part of a resurrection study that, that Paul was doing, but he identifies a spiritual principle that absolutely applies to this old covenant, new covenant change that I'm talking about. And we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 and 6, looking for a spiritual principle of how God works. Paul writes, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Here he's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, last Adam is now a reference to Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, meaning there's some similarity between old covenant Adam and new covenant Adam, but there's an important and critical distinction as well. Verse 46 is where we find our principle, though. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. This is a principle that applies throughout God's word, and it's one of the most important principles of understanding the progression of how God works in redemptive history. And if you miss this principle, you miss essential stuff, key stuff, critically important stuff in how God works. So as it applies to baptism and its relationship to old covenant sign of covenant entry, circumcision, circumcision was first the natural. Baptism is then the spiritual. Baptism, while there's a physical component, we actually did dunk Edna in physical water this morning. Nevertheless, the water isn't the essential thing about what happened. What's essential about what happened this morning is what was happening in Edna's heart and how the water relates to what the Lord has done in Edna's heart. So let's turn from Corinthians to the book of Colossians now. Chapter 2. This is the one passage anywhere in God's word that links Old Covenant circumcision and New Covenant baptism. But the link is important to pay attention to in terms of how Paul describes it so we don't miss that there is a similarity between the two, but there's an important difference in distinction as well. The similarity between circumcision and baptism is this. They're both covenant entry signs. You can't enter a covenant with God without one of these two signs being applied to your life. In the old covenant, you either had to be personally circumcised or married to or born in the family of someone that was personally circumcised. And that was it. That was the only way to enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord. So much so that if someone came from another nation and said, I want to be part of the covenant people of God, they were forced or required to be circumcised in order to enter the covenant. But all of that was natural. And now God has shifted to something that's spiritual. And here's how he connects the two. Colossians chapter 2, I'll read starting in verse 11. And it's talking about Christ and the work of Christ. In him, that's in Christ... In him also, you were circumcised. Here he's talking to all true believers in the new covenant. And he says, in coming to know the Lord, you experienced a circumcision. But 
there's a difference between old covenant circumcision and what now Paul is describing as new covenant circumcision. In him also you were circumcision, circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What does that mean, made without hands? It means that we're, he's not talking about a natural circumcision. He's not talking about cutting away a portion of flesh from your physical body. He's talking about something internal, something spiritual, but it still involves a cutting away, just not of your natural flesh, but of what we would call, following Paul's example here, cutting away of a spiritual fleshly nature. So in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. He doesn't mean that when you're saved, you, you jettison your physical body. He's talking about something internal, the body of the flesh, the fleshly influence that controlled you and constrained you to act in all of the wrong ways before you actually came to know the Lord. By the circumcision of Christ. Now that phrase simply means it's the circumcision that's unlike all of the old covenant circumcisions. Who performed the circumcisions in the old covenant? The very first circumcision was performed by who? Abraham. And performed on whom? Abraham. Abraham circumcised Abraham. And then he proceeded to circumcise his sons. And then he trained them to circumcise their sons after him and their sons, sons, and on and on and on throughout Old Covenant history. So that was the circumcision of Abraham because he performed it. This is the circumcision of Christ because Christ performs it and he performs it on the heart of every true New Covenant believer. He doesn't perform it on their physical body, but without human hands being involved, he does something in the heart of the new covenant believer as they enter into covenant relationship with himself. And then in verse 12, Paul links that to the new covenant experience of baptism. In other words, the point that he's making is new covenant circumcision is experienced when you are baptized in the name of the Lord. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh meaning you that's, this is your heart condition before you were saved God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross so there's two things that are highlighted the great work of christ in his sacrifice on the cross and how that forever changes the record that stands against us the record of our failures the record of our sins before the throne of god so he focuses on what christ did on the cross and he focuses beyond that also on what christ did in your heart the moment you truly came to know him and believe in him in a saving way, he circumcised you in the experience of your baptism. All right, and another passage, Titus chapter 3. We've got just enough time to finish this morning. Titus chapter 3.
I'll read from verse 1. Paul gives kind of, as he, as he does in more than one place, he gives kind of just a quick summary of the story of our, of our salvation. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. This is now the story of who we were before salvation. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, and here's where, this is the story of when the Lord intervened in our lives. The moment he chose to interrupt the flow of our lives and to say, your life is going to be changed forever because I'm calling you into a saved covenant relationship with me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by This is how he actually saved us. The moment of our salvation, this is what actually took place in our heart by the washing of regeneration. And that word regeneration could easily have been translated because it literally translates this, the washing of new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why does God change the covenant sign in the new covenant? Because the new covenant sign is appropriate for the experience of the new covenant, which the new covenant is all about not natural birth into this world to just make the people of Israel greater and greater and greater. It's all about spiritual birth, new birth, regenerating birth, receiving new life from God, life where there was only spiritual death prior to that. And he, he associates that with a washing experience. When you're born again, you're washed. And what are you washed from? Because you know how it is. When you go into the shower, you wash. And you're not just washing because you like the feel of water on your skin. You're washing because there's stuff on you that needs to be washed off. And the washing of regeneration is necessary because there's stuff in you that needed to be washed away. And so God associates our new covenant entry point with a new birth washing experience. All right, one final passage, and we'll just literally take one minute here because we studied this in great detail just recently. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. And I just want to reemphasize with this final passage where I started this morning. I started with the question, who should be baptized and who should not be baptized? This Great Commission passage emphasizes the right answer to those questions. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so Jesus specifically mentions, as we saw in our study uh, when we were focused on the Great Commission, he mentions baptism as a, 
necessary element to a right response to hearing this gospel of salvation that's being proclaimed to all the nations. But I want you to focus on this. There's, there's two elements in verse 19 that I don't want us to miss. Go therefore and, first element, make disciples. Make disciples. How do you make a disciple? I mean, you're starting from scratch. You know, how to, you know how to make dinner if you're starting from scratch. How do you make a disciple? Well, you have to have raw material, right? You have to have some material to work with, which is a person. And that person needs to have a certain condition of heart in order to be rightly identified as a disciple. Not everybody in this world is a disciple. Disciple means a true follower of the Lord Jesus. And so they have to hear the gospel message. They have to hear the message of salvation. They have to believe it. They have to understand it. They have to embrace it. But when they do, you have now just made a disciple. And having made that disciple, what are you to do next with those disciples that you've just made? Baptizing them in the name. Now, there's one word that's easily missed, and it's the word them. If you're one to underline, I don't know if, I don't even remember if I emphasized this enough when we study the Great Commission, but I'll emphasize it now if I didn't then. If you're one to underline, underline the word them. Or if you like to circle stuff in your Bible, circle that one, or highlight that one. Why the word them? Make disciples, baptizing them. Them and only them is what's implied. Can an infant be a disciple? Absolutely not. Now, you can get them heading in the right direction of discipleship through your healthy and godly parental training. And I hope you're invested in that as you raise young ones. But there is no infant that's a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. Can you be a disciple at eight years old, though? Yes, you can. You certainly can. If your eight-year-old heart and mind grasps the true nature of who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish, how that applies to your life, and you believe that and embrace that in a saving way. And it's them, those true disciples and only them, that should ever be baptized. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to just stop and rehearse and remember and refresh our minds and our hearts in these so important principles of how you call us into covenant relationship with yourself. Thank you for what you did in Edner's heart this morning. Thank you what you've done in many of the hearts here at the moment of our own personal baptism. I pray that our hearts would be strengthened by remembering what that all meant and what that continues to mean for us, not just for the rest of our lives here in this world, but for all of eternity to come. And we trust in you, looking to you, and thanking you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.